uh, there is one line in the whole of the Metta Sutta which I love. When I travel to teach anywhere, I don't take anything with me. I don't bring any books. I bring two poems and the Metta Sutta, which I anyway know by heart, but I bring it along. And there's one particular line in it which I think really explains this whole of what we're doing here. And has it's just such a central explanation of the whole import of Dharma, the thrust of Dharma, the point of Dharma, the way of Dharma. It's a great line. So I was going to start by saying, guess which line it is. So I'll tell you by the end of the time, and maybe in the meantime you'll be thinking it. I can even put it in a larger context. A couple of weeks ago, just I think two weeks ago, I had a conversation with one of my daughters. My children are quite grown. My grandchildren are quite grown now. I was having a conversation with one of my daughters and and I was telling her about uh, the practice, uh, the tradition amongst uh, primarily, as far as I can tell, Zen teachers of saving their single most pithy teaching for their final breath in their life. They breathe out, they say the deepest insight that they know. And then there's actually a, a, a book called Deaf Poems of Zen Masters and maybe 17 words or something, but the, 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 the whole of what they know in that final exhaling departure. And uh, Liz said to me, uh, what are you going to say, Mom? I said, well, first of all, I'm not in that tradition. And second of all, I'm not up to that yet, I don't think. Uh, so I need a little time to think it over. And I said, I just haven't figured it out yet what to say. So she said, well, what, what about if you said uh, housework is a waste of time? <laughs> so I said, actually, it has a very good rhythm about it. I like it. It's one of those pithy things. Probably I'd be remembered for that, Sylvia Borstein said. But I'd have to have a context for it. I'd have to somehow be able to make an interpretation where that made sense. So I think this does. And in that context, I want to talk about uh, starting from the phrase, this practice. We've, I, I listened all day as uh, uh, Sharda gave instructions last night, Sally talked last night, uh, I talked a little bit at lunchtime today, and I hear us saying all the time as we're doing this practice or continue to do the practice, and it's possible to think um, that the practice is saying these particular phrases. I want to say that the practice is developing the habit of greeting all persons and all situations, whether we greet them in the actual, real, outside world, whether we greet them in our minds and our hearts, to greet all situations, to greet all moments, to greet life, actually, with a heart of benevolence. I think actually maybe that's the whole of the sentence, to be able to greet every moment with a heart that greets it as a friend. One's own life certainly improves a lot, and I think the world improves a lot. I think life improves, my life and the life. I actually think what we're doing here, here and in our lives, as we continually habituate our minds and hearts to kindness is we sweeten the world in moment to moment. There's a world soup out there that everyone is cooking with their minds. 
that we are contributing to its sweetness. We're improving the flavor of it. And then when we say this practice and the problems of doing this practice, then we specifically mean the tool of making these recitations, resolves is what we call them, resolving that this should be so. I think of the resolve not as the practice, but as a very valuable tool in the practice of habituating the heart and the mind to kindness. And the way that it's a valuable tool, which is what I want to talk about tonight, is it creates concentration, which sweetens the mind in a lot of ways, relaxes it, it calms it, it makes it one-pointed, brings up a certain amount of delight in it. It allows it to see clearly moment to moment. It allows it to sustain its focus. Concentration is probably the main fruit of the practice of repetitive resolves. On top of that, it develops the, the, it increases the capacity for mindfulness because concentration actually does. Concentration is the base out of which mindfulness, the ability to see clearly in a balanced way, moment to moment, the full, tr- the full truth of that moment really rests on a bed of concentration. If you've come to a mindfulness retreat before, you know that we'll say many times in the first several days of the retreat, let's stay with a one-pointed attention. Let's bring the attention just to the breath. And really what we're doing is we're developing the capacity to pay attention moment to moment to all the aspects of our experience. But let's start with breath in order to develop that composure, that concentration really, that calm, that lightness of mind that really supports the ability to stay balanced and awake really moment to moment. So as we do this practice here of resolves, we are building concentration. The concentration is allowing for mindfulness to deepen. And we're directing the mind, I think, I believe, towards what is its natural inclination of benevolence. It's not just settling the mind down, but nudging it in the direction of connection. Sally said a very important thing last night when she said, it's a much better, it, it seems better to her, it seems to me as well, to call this loving kindness or kindness practice. Love is such a complicated word, and maybe just because it's in English, maybe, maybe it'd be different in another language. We have so many com- connotations to love, but kindness we all get. It has a flavor that's unambiguous. I think about calling this kindness practice, a friendliness practice, benevolence practice. I think about it mostly as a practice of caring. Caring caring in all the flavors of caring, in all the flavors of situations that we meet. There are only three different kinds of flavors, really. There's the flavor of a situation that we meet that's generally neutral. We just meet it. There's a flavor of the situation that we meet that's distressing and unpleasant in some way that startles the mind. And then there's the flavor of meeting a situation that startles the mind in a different way because it's someone else's good fortune or good luck or good talent also startling. The the difficult situations startle the mind into anguish or pity and the 
wonderful situations startle the mind sometimes into envy or jealousy. The neutral situations don't startle the mind and then often the mind falls asleep. This practice keeps the mind awake when it meets all different kinds of situations and it meets them depending on the situation with bef- by befriending them or consoling them or appreciating them. Those are the three flavors that the awakened heart responds with. It's wonderful to think that we come equipped with that from the beginning. We don't even have to go out and find a heart like that. We have a heart like that. It's really about caring in all those different flavors. I think about the expression, it's a harsh expression to say, but sometimes if people want to talk about indifference, they say, I couldn't care less. And I couldn't care less is about indifference. And this is the opposite of indifference. This is equanimity, which is balanced, but cares more. I'd like to think about this, that maybe we could say about this practice, I couldn't care more. Sometimes, sometimes people say when they're about to go home from a retreat, they say, I'm a little afraid of going out in the world. I'm afraid because I've gotten so quiet and all of my stories have gotten quiet and all of the grudges and the animosities have just sort of melted. And it's not that I don't remember them. It's just that I don't want to do them anymore. They're so unpleasant and they don't make it. They don't help me. They don't resolve anything. They actually hurt me more. They say, but I'm afraid to go out in the world because I've become too vulnerable. And I I love it when people use those particular words because then I get to say my line about I don't think there's such a thing as too vulnerable. I am waiting for the whole world to become too vulnerable. I think to myself, if we all became too vulnerable, we'd open our eyes, we'd see what we're doing to ourselves and to each other that hurts ourselves and each other and the planet, and we'd stop doing it. I really am waiting for that to happen. I couldn't care more. And it's really completely vulnerable. It's the kind of vulnerability that's really based in wisdom. It comes from looking around and really being able to recognize what's true about life. That it's so fragile and it's so difficult. I've forgotten the story. I, I was once taking a, a, um, a, a shuttle ride, one of those airport shuttles, very early in the morning from Santa Barbara to L.A. It was a long ride, and I was sitting up in front with the driver. And uh, we got to talk about one thing or another, and uh, at some point he said to me, um, you know, a lot of people sleeping in the back of the van. Let me see if I remember the story right. A lot of people sleeping in the back of the van, and he said to me, uh, you know, uh, I'm pretty sleepy myself. Would you, you suppose you, you, the people in the back of the van would mind if I pull off in the next restaurant and get myself some coffee? Uh, and I said, no, no, I'm sure the people in the van would, wouldn't mind. Uh, would you like me to drive until we get to the next place? And he said, no, 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 he said, I can drive. I said, I'll talk to you, you know, and, and we had already been talking, so I knew a great deal about his history and when he had come from, from, uh, when he had come from India and the restaurant that he had set up in Los Angeles and how the restaurant didn't, didn't succeed and his whole family. And we'd gone through his whole story 
but I was determined to talk to him to keep him awake. And I, uh, I, I said, and his name was Muhammad. So I said, Muhammad, you're Muslim, right? He said, Yeah, I am. I said, uh, So uh, you pray every day, right? How many times do you pray? I know how many times he prays, but I'm just trying to keep the conversation going. So how many times do you pray? He said, Five times. I said, Do you pray long or short? He said, Well. It doesn't matter. You could pray long or short. So it depends on how much time you pray you have. He said, I think it's better if you pray long, but if you can't pray long, you could pray short. And then he thought about it a minute, and he said, uh, you know, though, he said, sometimes it doesn't matter how long you stand and pray. You could stand and pray the whole day, and still your heart isn't connected. So I said, well, Muhammad, how do you get your heart connected? He said, oh, he said, you just look around outside of you. And he's waving his, arms out, his arm outside the, 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 the uh, shuttle that he's driving. He just waves his arm. He said, you just keep your eyes open and you look around. He said, it's as if we've all been thrown into a great big ocean and nobody knows how to swim. We're all drowning. He said, you look at that. You feel connected. And I thought, at that point we drove, we, I saw they had a sign that said, uh, Wendy's. I said, uh, Muhammad, there's a Wendy's. You want to go drive off and get some coffee? He said, no. He said, it's all right. He said, I'm awake. And uh, I love that story, by the way, because I'd like to take that awake on several levels. You know. Many of you will know it's the key line in, this, in a Buddha story where someone asked the Buddha, are you a god? And he said, no. And he, they said, are you an ordinary man? And he said, no. And they said, well, what are you then? And he said, I'm awake. Really what this practice does is it quietens the mind so that we wake up and we see that everyone is in the same soup, swimming as hard as they can, without a rule book. It's heartbreaking. And your heart breaks open and you take care of everyone. This, that's what we're doing here. We're not learning to say phrases. We're not convincing ourselves we should say phrases. We're really moving into that wisdom that opens the heart so that it befriends and consoles and appreciates. It's a wonderful thing to be able to wish well, to feel well enough oneself, which is part of the clue of the key line, to be able to wish well. It's hard to feel well because we are so continually challenged. Sally talked about it last night. She said, you know, get a phone call from a friend. Her father just died. Get a phone call right after that from another friend. She's getting married. That he just finished feeling for this person in that way. And then he feel for this person in another way. And because we are feeling people... We are all the time feeling and feeling and feeling. And it's as if our heart, we're going through the day and thinking, oh, good, oh, alas, oh, good, oh, alas. And I was thinking about the Buddha saying, this realm of 10,000 joys and 10,000 woes, and recognizing that because we feel, we are really open to the 10,000 joys, 10,000 woes of a life. The Buddha said it was a lucky thing to be born in this realm of 10,000 joys, 10,000 woes, because it's a place to begin to really discover the capacity of the heart to connect with tenderness. This very morning, I checked my email. 
Uh, and I had an email from a very dear friend of mine in another part of the country who has not been feeling well, and I've been waiting to hear from her about the results of her CAT scan. And she's a very long-time and dedicated practitioner, meditation practitioner. And um, I got an email very early this morning, and uh, it said, uh, I have ovarian cancer. And um, she said, my practice has never held me up so much as now. And uh, we're both, she and her partner, are really frightened about it. She said, but you know, I'm really solid with my practice. It really holds me up. I'm really depending on it. And I called her, and I, I phoned her. And she answered the phone, and I said, I'm so sorry. And she said, so am I. And we both cried a little bit. And then we talked about it's a good thing that we have the practice and that it will hold her up. But it's after you cry that it holds you up. And she said, it's really good to know that I'm held in love by other people. And I said, it's really good to be able to love other people and hold them in love. Because it's really what mitigates the profound sadness of finding that you have a terrible illness or finding that someone that you love has a terrible illness. I think actually what metta does, sometimes it seems like it's something that you do for other people. I actually think that the principal recipient of the practice of benevolence is one's own self. That I sit if I, in the middle of whatever it is that I am practicing. We each of us sit in the middle of, it is, of whatever it is that we are practicing. And I think we are each the principal recipient of the tender feelings that we generate. I like thinking that the Buddha said, of all the realms, this is the best one to get born into. The angel realm, right above us, um, hasn't got enough trouble in it (laughs) to tenderize the heart. It's just lovely all the time. Sometimes I think about that. Even the thing about, well, you can't progress from the angel realm because there isn't enough trouble. Sometimes I think to myself, be all right not to progress. I'd like to have a little bit of it. <laughs> but maybe it wouldn't. Maybe this is really what we want to do. I'm, I feel most fully alive when I am connected in a caring way. I think you are too. Came up this afternoon in one of our, uh, one of our group meetings that you'd be, the person be sitting and saying and saying and saying, and it's kind of like a phone book, and you're pushing yourself, and you're falling asleep, and, and all of a sudden, it's real. And in the moment that it's real, it's worth everything. There's a whole different feeling to really wishing with all of one's heart and feeling connected to the wish in the fullest way there's no one that's left, not a person, not the other person, not yourself, not the other person, just the connection in love, which really is what I think is the foundation of everything. Mostly in these last several years, I've listened to how um, my, uh, my teaching has changed. What I ask people the most these days when I begin to teach a class or I meet with somebody for the first time, I say, these are such difficult times. 
How are you managed to keep how are you managing to keep your heart afloat? Sometimes the image when I say that to a whole group of people, I say, How are you managed to get your heart afloat keep your heart afloat? And they're thinking about it for a while. And then I say, um, against all odds. And then they get it. And then they usually laugh about it, you know, the idea of your heart's floating. But I think that there's so much that causes the heart to sink. Feeling overwhelmed with news, with bad news, with worries, with troubles. These are all, by the way, hints about what's going to be the most important line in the sutta. (laughs) Which I'm not going to tell you yet. We'll talk more about how does this practice work to keep the mind able to see so clearly that it chooses spontaneously to connect with goodness. So I brought a newspaper back from uh, Canada. I was in uh, Canada for the last week. Actually, I got home just last evening, just before I came here. And um, one, of the, one of the issues of the morning paper in Vancouver uh, has an article that I wanted to read to you, piece of it. Before that, though, I want to remind you, because this is a piece, another piece, an important part of the clue, and I should do it now. Do you remember last night Sally told about the story about the birds that she and I had guarded and protected and now had had babies? And uh, before, uh, in the afternoon, we talked about that story, just before we came in here. And Sally said, well, I, I won't say where it is because you know, we don't want everybody to come be looking for the birds. I'll just say it happened somewhere. And of course, it's a wonderful story. And of course, you probably noticed afterwards that everybody went right out and figured out where the birds would be and looked at them. So everybody was out there not talking, but looking and appreciating and pointing and probably nudging, who knows, but, and, and, and uh, looking at them. And clearly, uh, delighting in them. They're wonderful. They're these three little heads just looking out over the top. And I realize that in the moment that they have become our birds. You know, this whole place is full of birds. But those birds are our birds. And we are watching them and being careful about them. We're opening the door very carefully, not to startle them. Just three little birds in a world full of birds. And they're our birds. We, I, 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 I thought about this this morning, and I realized we don't care about them because they're our birds. They are our birds because we care about them. We cared first, and they became the birds, our birds. And I thought about how important that is. I thought about the sense of mine and ours and us and how the world has so much trouble because we have we and them, and me and you, and I and everybody else who's in a different category from me about whom I might have a story or who might have a story about me, and all the things that make divisions between people, and the way in which in a moment of caring and in a moment of ease, the insight that comes up, I'm sure that what motivates the delight to everybody looking at those birds last night was really... uh, feeling good for you birds, you know, against all odds, you made it, you built that nest, you took care of those birds, 
It's a fragile world and life is short and you did it. I think we do that just naturally because we're, we're human beings and we want it for ourselves and we cheer on other people and other beings when they can do it as well. Guy said it last night when he was uh, outlining the uh, precepts that we take that all beings want life just as we do. And we take on the precept particularly while we're here to be attentive to the ways in which we might inadvertently attenuate some being's life. And I'm thinking about it not just here, but in the world, but because it makes us feel so good to be caring. They become ours. So here's a very, for me, wonderful story about how people become ours. This is a Vancouver newspaper, and uh, just four or five days ago. Somewhere in this country, if he's brave enough to carry the handle, there lives a 25-year-old with the first name Berbobin, named by his grateful refugee parents for the lanky Canadian immigration officer who stamped a piece of paper under the Southeast Asian sun and welcomed them to a new nation. As it happens, they were bit off on the name. It was actually Ferbovin, but the family mistakenly switched V's for B's. Back then, in the summer of 1979, there were more than a few names like that given to honor and remember. This was the summer that Canadians stopped playing tennis and invited strangers from the other side of the world to sit at their dinner tables and sleep in their spare beds. It wasn't that long ago, really, but the time and the mood seem out of place today. Computers were bigger than washing machines. And it was still shocking to see people dying on TV. And this country's first instinct could be to open its doors to people in need, not bolt them shut. In the summer of 1979, when hundreds of thousands of Southeast Asians were so desperate to flee political violence, they risked pirates drowning or worse. Canada offered the first and firmest hand and accepted proportionally more Indo-Chinese refugees than any other country. In a space of 24 months, more than 60,000 were taken in, most of them Vietnamese. 34,000 were sponsored personally by Canadians themselves. Six years later, the United Nations awarded the People of Canada the Nansen Medal for service to refugees, the first and only time it's ever gone to citizens of a nation. But forget the quotas, goes on this writer, and the numbers. Look to the small towns like Nuanlaga in Saskatchewan, where dairy farmers Dick and Alma Sawatsky celebrated their 40th wedding anniversary last summer and dined on homemade egg rolls from the family they'd helped settle next door in 1979. Or Steinbach, Manitoba, where 25 years since the long, cold, silent drive from the Winnipeg airport, the Toes are still sharing Christmas with the Trins, and their now six now-grown and prosperous sons and daughters. Albert Toe said, in all but legal terms, we are family. I'll read you this one last paragraph. It said, the country in those days had its naysayers, it's true, who weren't always delicate with their words, but ultimately, political will and public heart gelled into a defining national deed, 
even with a minority government sitting in parliament. An immigration officer, thinking back years later, said, when the music began, Canada had its dancing shoes on. (laughs) Makes me cry to read that. I like that line about, in everything but legal terms, we are family. Think about how the world can get to be a family. Think about the numbers of people, places on the planet as we sit here so comfortably and safe now where people are not family, seeing each other as different and fear-provoking. I think it's a really important thing to talk about the way in which concentration practice makes a feeling of safety in the mind and in the body. I think it's not an accident that the first of the metaphrases, however you look at them, may I be free of danger, may I feel safe and protected, may I feel protected and safe. I think it's not an accident that it's first. When we're safe, we're able to relax, not to be on the lookout. We don't have to be thinking, "Uh uh-oh, what am I thinking about this person? What are they thinking about me? What's the story I have here? Can I relax? Am I okay? can actually delight. I think the delight is uh, such a big part of keeping your heart afloat. Vancouver is a wonderful city to visit. It's uh, um, even more than New York, but perhaps like New York, it reminded me of New York. It has such tremendous ethnic diversity, more than most cities that I know. I spent some time, a couple of days, at a spa kind of place right on the outskirts of Vancouver. And people came for the day with families, and people came. There was a hotel there, so people came and stayed. There were all kinds of hot tubs and cool tubs and big tubs and little tubs and swimming pools and all kinds of old people and young people and somebody with a baby so small, I was so surprised that they weren't at home taking care of it. It looked like they had come directly from it being born to this place. (laughs) And very old people needing with walkers to get put in and out of these pools, so everybody in between. And there's a particularly hot tub that I liked sitting in most of all. Probably was, uh, oh, 15 feet across and round and had steps, and people were sitting all over on the steps up to here in the hot and looking around. And I was just so enjoying the visible diversity of people. You know, I thought to myself as I sat there, uh, this is a wonderful photograph you know, of, uh, of the ways and shapes and sizes and, and really ethnicities that people come in. And you could listen sometimes to people in conversations and figure out this is Vietnamese. I can I can figure out what's Viet- Vietnamese and what's Chinese, and um, what's Japanese. And sometimes you can tell by looking. But if I'm not so sure, Vietnamese, you need to listen. And different families, and uh, some African American people, lots of. Uh, Indians. Uh, there's a very large Indian population. 
there's a, a, a there were Iranis. Um, what else was I? Th- Everybody was there. I thought to myself, here we are with the whole world sitting in this tub, <laughs> nicely. And you know, there's something about maybe the maybe the tub got me more than the New York subway, where everybody looks like that, because we were sitting in such close proximity and with our clothes off, you know, so that you know, in bathing suits. And there's something so intimate about that. I thought we all feel relaxed here. People smile at each other. And I thought to myself about that. Was the, the, what I could see, actually, were only the differences that you can see, old and young and ethnicity and um, degree of physical ability. You can't see people's politics or their religion or what kind of work they do or their history. Or can't see any. You have no story on anybody on which you can hang any kind of a, I like this, or they won't like me, or what if they knew this about me? There's not much you can do with that except sit and smile at people. Actually, there's a little bit that you can do, because I realize that the stories that come are the stories that are my sensitivities. At one point in one of my forays into this pool, there were two women talking to each other. They struck up a conversation, women with young children, they clearly didn't know each other having a conversation. And I kept kind of looking like I wouldn't mind being in that conversation also. And they just kept talking right past me. And I thought, what is... Then I thought, you know what? It's because I'm old. And it probably is, actually, because they were talking about children and adopting children. And so I had like a momentary bad feeling because if I'm going to have a story, it's going to be about old. And then after a while, I thought to myself, you know what? I am old. <laughs> and, uh, and they were having a good time, and they were talking about their children and how they, they actually had both adopted children. They'd had a lot of trouble. And I thought, relax, it's just your story. It was interesting to listen to this, and I didn't have to participate, I just listened. But I realized how my story and my difference, it's really, it happened again on the way home. You realize the story is a half a second away. Any story and any equanimity of feeling is a half a minute, a half a second away from being, oh, good, and oh, dear, oh, good, oh, dear. I was getting on the last flight that I came on coming home, and uh, I got on the flight, and uh, because it comes from Canada, the flight attendants are bilingual, and they make a judgment about you when they see you. So they either say uh, good morning or bonjour, depending on what they've made a judgment. And I was so pleased. I got on, and once again, they thought I was French. And I was so happy about that, because, <laughs> because I thought to myself, no, truly, this is embarrassing, but I thought to myself, it's the cute haircut. They think I'm chic. <laughs> so I sit down, feeling really good and cute and everything, and... And then, uh, and I sit down, and pretty soon in the two seats next to me come in two young and big men. And uh, they sit down, and I'm sitting, and uh, we get a little conversation about one thing or another, and uh, about get, flying or whatever. And uh, I said, you know, just the most interesting thing happened. I said, I just got um, 
I stopped just before boarding on all of my planes. I took three flights, and on each one of them, I was stopped just getting onto the plane. You know, this is after you've already given your last-minute boarding pass in to go through my bags yet again, through my backpack and through my carry-on bag. Three flights, three times it happened. So I, you know, I just thought it was an interesting conversation. I told these two men... And I said, you know, I don't think of myself as meeting the profile. I said, of people that get pulled out of the line three times, I said, I wonder what kind of profile they're, they're working with. They said, well, and they laughed. They said, well, clearly it's the profile of pick the little old lady. And I said, <laughs> <laughs> now, this, is, this is two seconds after I was feeling good about the cute haircut. <laughs> but I felt great about the haircut. And I thought, oh. But, and I, you know, I looked at them, and I and I and they were completely without guile, and completely nice, and completely pleasant. We had a lovely flight. We they were very sweet men, and I thought to myself, "I'm an old lady with a cute haircut." That's it. <laughs> but that's the truth. You know, I could either make a story and be up and down, or you know, it's. But it's so hard to keep your heart in a good place. Oh, good. Oh, alas. Oh, good. Oh, alas. <laughs> so concentration is one of the things that builds the ability to look at a situation clearly and say, look, this is what's happening. This is what's happening. This is how I can choose to feel about it. Choosing to feel not resentful is a huge, huge step forward. I think this is what we're trying to do here. We are trying to habituate the heart to choose to be non-embittered, non-resentful, choose not to hold a grudge, not to get mad. I was telling some group today, one of my two groups, that uh, you know how sometimes you have a sign with a circle and a line through it and no smoking, no parking? No becoming embittered. It's not worth it. No becoming resentful. The non-contentious heart. Not the, not the stupefied heart or the sleeping heart. The awakened heart that's able to look at a situation and assess it. And first of all, in those situations, realize nobody means any ill. They're just doing what they're doing. It has nothing to do with me. I don't have to take it personally. Most things don't have to do with anybody personally. They just happen. We take them personally. So really, to be able to see that clearly. Sally said a really important instruction this morning when she said, if when you're thinking about somebody, troubling thoughts about that person come up, she said, don't think about it. Think about something else. Think about the good about them. As if that's easy to do. It's not that easy to do. But it's a wonderful uh, instruction because it's a possibility to do. You can do that. You can say, I'm not going there. Thank you very much. And to discover that you can do that is a huge burst of confidence and freedom, in, in freedom and liberation. Say, I can really do this. I, used to rem- I, I, I can remember there were times when I was on retreat particularly when you can't hide from your mind. You can't hide any time. But on retreat you can't hide worse because there's nothing to hide with. You, know, you can't hide with a diversion. This is the most naked practice I know. There's no place to hide. 
You can't hide, and I would be stewing over some particular thing in my life that had either frightened me a lot, was frightening me a lot, or had hurt my feelings a lot. And it's so painful to sit with hurt feelings or frightened feelings. And every once in a while, the mind would settle down, and I'd feel okay. And then I'd have in the back of my mind, really, the worry and the prayer made that, that thought not arise in my mind, because if that thought arises in my mind, I'm sunk, it's back, it will grab my mind and I will be stuck with it for however long. But really that's to imagine that a thought has more control over you than, than actually your own intention, that the thought has come from outer space and grabbed your mind. Actually it's the mind that grabs the thought. And to know that it's a possibility to say, you know, I accidentally grabbed that thought, but you know what, I don't like that thought, I don't want to grab it. I'll let go of that and I'll do something else. This particular practice is the practice of doing something else. I'll just say those phrases. I will sweeten my mind. I'll think well for myself. I'll think well for somebody else. While I'm doing that, I am free of that. And I have done that myself. It's a tremendous burst of confidence, courage. also think that the, the mind that begins to be concentrated has the ability, because it's more mindful, actually, to put things into a perspective. It can do that, by the way. It can drop that. It can say, I won't go there, because it's calm enough. It doesn't get so frightened into being trapped. It says, uh, 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 I'm not going there. It's free to choose. It's actually being calm or composed is one of the factors of concentration. <laughs> The mind that is concentrated is able to be a little bit more mindful and able to see a little bit more clearly. Also through calmness, it can put things into a perspective. This that's come up in my mind is a frightening thing, it's a painful thing. But what the mind is often able to do is to say, and it isn't the only thing. I have a life around that. When things are difficult they tend to swell up in the mind and the whole world disappears. The mind that that can see this is true and other things are true. In the most banal, okay, we go back to that completely banal uh, uh, example. I am an old woman with a cute haircut and a lot of other things. It doesn't define me, it's one part of me. I have a little problem about that because it's hard to get used to being old. But I'm working on it. In the meantime, I have a whole life around it. So for a moment, it fills up the whole screen, but then, I, but then it shrinks back to the piece of the screen that it is. And there's a whole life full of life and love and interests and everything else in it. I love the idea of uh, a little screen and a big screen in the mind. Do you know those uh, televisions where you can watch a football game over here and then you can if you push another button, you can watch what's happening in Wimbledon at the same time over here, catch the score and go back or you know, watch Wimbledon and catch the football game however way you want to do it. But you can have two things going. I think we always have our story and we have the world story going on our screen. And I can look at the world story and it's amazing. Look at this whole world of becoming and new birds and new flowers and these amazing turkey and the deer that aren't afraid of anything. And all of these people who want to sweeten their heart, there's a million wonderful things in the world. And there's my story. 
And there's a million really dreadful things in the world that I could really adopt in my heart and make my heart way bigger and way more alive in its tenderness if I chose to do that, or I could do my little story over here. And the thing is that every once in a while, my story gets so compelling, it swells up and fills up the whole screen because I got startled and I forget that there's a world around there. It was Václav Havel who said that hope is the ability to say no to what's exactly in front of you. And I thought, what on earth can that mean? And then he went on to say, it means, it doesn't mean no, this isn't what's happening. It means no, this isn't the only thing that's happening. There's a whole world around that. And when you see that, then there's all kinds of hope left. There's a life. There's all this other stuff. And you need to have the ability, which comes from composure and calm in the mind, to see around the story, to see the bigger story, and to see there are other choices. One of the other things I think that's really the fruit of mindfulness, which comes again from concentration, is really discovering the absolute truth that there is no safer refuge, there is no happier place to be than in the place of wishing well, than one's own benevolent heart, wishing well to yourself, wishing well to other beings. That that particular, really amazing piece of truth, that there's nothing more pleasurable than goodwill. And sometimes sometimes there's a a thought that comes in, into the mind, about something that has provoked you, or provoked me. I'm mad at something that happened. And I think, you know, I could just have a little bit of five-minute mad at this. I could just think five minutes of, of I'll tell them and I'll fix them and I'm right and they're wrong and how could they have done that and imagine that and maybe I'll tell a few people about it at the same time. And, you know, because sometimes it feels like it's fun to kind of, especially if you're right, you know, the righteous <laughs> indignation is the best because then you can, you can feel a little bit, like you deserve to be able to have this pleasure of planning revenge, even if you never act out on the revenge to plan it. But the truth is that the mind that's hatching revenge is not comfortable. There really isn't any pleasure apart from wishing well. Wishing ill is not pleasant. Part of the really phenomenal beauty of this practice is that the mind settles down. It's not that you have to convince yourself, oh yeah, I should do this we become converted to it. You realize, I don't want to live anyplace else but in a good heart. There isn't any place else that's anywhere near as comfortable. I have to pick up the pace because I have to tell you that the phrase is wishing in gladness and in safety. May all beings be at ease right in the middle of the Metta Sutta. It it begins by saying this is what should be done by those who are skilled in goodness and who know the path of peace. It's a great sutta. Every single line of it is worth hours and hours of talk and reflection. But, and after those first 10 or 11 first lines, talking about how to behave in the world so that you really set yourself up to be a person resting in gladness and in safety. It means taking care of yourself, composing yourself, behaving in a way that doesn't churn up the mind, 
doing everything that you can, in fact, to compose the mind. And then out of that place of gladness and safety, wishing may all beings be at ease. The delight of gladness and the really the, the relaxation of safety, not needing to think about yourself, really to be able to look at that big screen and say, there is a whole world out there And what's true for me is true of the whole world. Every living being is faced with the difficulty of staying comfortable. Now really, the whole of the Buddha's teaching is based on the idea that life is inherently difficult, that trying to stay comfortable is what we are trying to do the whole life. And we can't do it once and for all. We're continually re-making ourselves comfortable, accommodating ourselves to change. The things are always changing, and because things are always changing, there's no inherent satisfactoriness. In any moment, it will change. That's actually the first noble truth. The second noble truth is that we struggle so much with trying to keep it comfortable. We can accommodate and become comfortable, but we can struggle to keep things the way we wanted them and suffer from it, or we can relax, accommodate the moment, greet it with openness, greet the moment as a friend, and experience the truth that peace is possible, which is the third noble truth. I think it's actually the direct experience that peace is possible that causes the conversion of the heart to kindness, because after that it doesn't want to do anything else. The fourth noble truth is really the systematic path to the cultivation of the habit of returning to that place of peace. And really the the pinnacle of that eightfold path is wise concentration, what we are practicing here. Developing that concentration that brings delight to the mind and composure to the mind, one-pointedness so it can choose this and not that, able to aim itself clearly and see this is what's happening, can stay with this is what's happening, so that over time it continues to be able to hold truth clearly in view. I was thinking about, um, I remember today an experience Seven or eight years ago, I was in a conference. In, I, I was invited to be in a conference in India, and uh, Mahagosananda was there. Mahagosananda is still alive. He's quite old now, and his memory is not as good as it was when he was young. But his heart, uh, which was always known for its extreme openness and kindness, continues to be that way. When I met him, uh, it was 1995, so it was about nine years ago, I actually think he did have his whole mind available to him. But of all the people in the conference, he spoke the least. People had long thoughts about every topic that came up, and then they'd turn to him and they'd say, Mahagasananda, uh, would you like to comment on this? And he'd say, uh, may all beings be at ease. May all beings be happy. May all beings be at ease. May all beings be happy. He smiled. I took him, on one afternoon, there was a whole group of people that were 
gathering in the lobby of the Imperial Hotel uh, to take a train somewhere. And he was there early, sitting uh, quietly, smiling, just sitting quietly. And I said, can I take you to tea? Uh, This is one of the experiences in my life that I will cherish forever. And uh, he said, thank you. And I said, I'll bring it to you. And he said, no, I'll go with you. They had a little tea shop, right, adjoining the lobby of the Imperial Hotel. So um, a monk can't ask you for things, but you can offer them things and they can accept. And they don't carry anything with them. They don't carry money with them ever. So he went to the tea shop and I ordered tea and tea came and he was drinking his tea. And I knew that in that year, uh, in the year previous, it must have been 96, in, 90, in 95, I knew because I had friends there that he had participated in the in a ceremonial opening of the gates of Auschwitz on the day that Auschwitz was liberated in 1945. A large number of people gathered at Auschwitz. The gates were closed, they opened, and a whole parade of people walked out symbolically through those gates. And Mahagosananda was there. And a march began from uh, Auschwitz in Poland across the continent and ultimately People joined the march, people left the march as it went through different countries. The march continued in some form of people continuing until it met in August in Hiroshima on the day that the bomb fell 50 years previously. And Mahagosananda was there. So here I am with him having tea and I said, uh, I know that you were there and I know that you were there. I said, uh, what are you doing now? What work are you doing now? And he said, well, I'm working very hard to, have, uh, to bring an end to landmines in the world because there are a lot of unexploded landmines around and they're causing a lot of pain to people. And I said, what can I do to help? Is there anything I can do to help? And he said, well, yes. And he reached in his sleeve. You know, monks don't wear anything except that robe. You know, they don't carry anything. He reached in his sleeve and he took out a petition to the, to the, the, you know, to be sent to the United Nations, he said, "You can take this petition and have as many people sign it." And I thought to myself, "May I never be more than one sleeve length away for a petition to end the causes causes of suffering in this world?" And at the and at the same time, all he said in that whole conference was, "May all beings be at ease. May all beings be peaceful and happy." So I think that maybe the really ultimate thing, if I get to have a, a breath to make a final statement, and if people care about what my final statement is, and if they don't care, I'll make it now, and it'll be that final statement. <laughs> it'll be something like, um, may you experience, um, may we all experience that uh, Gladness and safety that enables us to wish most sincerely from our hearts, may all beings be at ease. Then, if I wanted to put it into a larger perspective, I would say, apropos of whether or not Housework is a waste of time. (laughs) Nothing is a waste of time if the heart is using the time to habituate itself to love.
So I said it now. I don't have to say it at any other time. Let's just sit for a minute. May we all experience that gladness and safety that enables us to wish without any boundary at all. May all beings everywhere be at ease. Thank you. This talk was given by Sylvia Burstein at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on July 10, 2004. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.